and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace, which has saved us, and for the love that you have demonstrated by sending your Son to save us. We ask for your blessing upon us now, Heavenly Father, as we seek to learn from your word, to feed from it, that we might grow through it. And we pray, Lord, that we would take it within ourselves and by your grace we might be able to, Father, make it our own and, and live it for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you know that you are constantly learning? Constantly. And you might underestimate how much you learn, um, but we are constantly learning. And I'm not talking about just going to school or doing courses, but we are designed and God has designed us to constantly learn. Part of our problem, though, is the reason we have to keep on learning is because our brains are a bit like a bucket with a hole in it. For those of us who are getting older, I'm noticing you're, you're actually nodding a lot more quickly with that one. Because with time, if you don't use it, you lose it. Correct. So our brains are a bit like you're filling up a bucket with information, but slowly, slowly there's a leak that comes out. And the stuff that's at the bottom is stuff that's been there for a while that you haven't tended to use. And somehow it's sort of, you know, sort of leaking out. And part of the reason that God calls us to meet together often, at least every week, right, is because we need to be constantly fed. Okay, we need to, to have a top up, let's say, okay, from that perspective. And so the amazing thing about us is that uh, the way God's designed us is that we are constantly learning. And it mean, what that means is that we are constantly taking in new information from our surroundings, from other people, from, from the things we experience, and we review it against what we already know to see whether what we already know is actually still valid anymore, because sometimes it isn't. And from, compar from constantly comparing what we knew to what we now have found out and this new information that's coming in, we then adjust our behaviour to suit the environment. I'll give you an example. So most of you know when you live at home where to find your teacups, where to find the coffee, where to find your socks. Well, the women know where to find the socks. The men have to ask normally. Yeah. Um, you're, <laughs> you normally know where everything is by instinct okay, and by habit because you've done it so many times you don't have to think about where things are. But if I was to travel overseas, and the, the environment around me is completely different and people are even speaking a different language, I'm going to be trying to process or, or the information I had before isn't going to be very relevant to my new place. And I'm going to have to learn new stuff there, right? And so I'm going to have to learn. But then after a period of time, that new information is going to be compared with the current information and then I'm going to get more used to where I am. Okay, so those of you who've stayed in a hotel overseas, maybe the first time you went to the hotel, you didn't know where the lobby was and where the lifts were and stuff like that. But after you've stayed there for a few days, you already start to get in your mind a plan of where the hotel is compared to other places that you've been, so you won't get lost getting back. And you'll know where the various rooms are in the hotel and you'll probably remember where your room is Okay, unless you've got it written down on a piece of paper like some of us have to have with the floor number and everything. But the truth of the matter is that our world is constantly changing. And it's not just having to go overseas that you, where you find this dramatic, I'm just using that as a dramatic sort of example, but our world is constantly changing around us where we live today. 
I mean, if you were to compare the Australian society today to what it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago, it's dramatically different. Huge. Um, it's an example of that from a personal perspective. I've had a number of lawnmowers over the course of my life. Um, and the last one that gave up the ghost was a Massport. Anyone know what a Massport is? Okay, not sure if it's a good brand or not, but it was okay. I mean, it was it was all right. I mean, it did it did the job before it died, um, but it was terribly noisy and temperamental. Okay, so it used to make a whole lot of noise. I used to I used to lose half of my hearing. I think I've lost half of my hearing because of that particular mower, and and it was temperamental. So you know, every you when you you know pull that that cord, sometimes it would start, sometimes it wouldn't. If it wouldn't start, I'd have to go check in the spark plug, I'd have to go check in this and checking that. And so it was temperamental and uh, when it died, I thought to myself, okay, which one am I going to get next? And I know what I'm about to say to you, for some of you is going to be sacrilegious because I ended up getting an electric mower, okay? A battery powered one. When I when to look at the options, okay, for the first time, I considered, and I had in front of me, battery-powered lawnmowers. I'd never had that before, because previously there weren't really none, okay? There were ones that were wired up, but they, were, they didn't sort of appeal to me. Anyway, so I went to my local Bunnings to have a look at them, and after, after some thought, I decided on the electric one, because my circumstances had changed, and the, the way they made these things had changed as well. And so when I looked at it, I thought to myself, okay, one takes petrol, which I have to go to the petrol station and remember to fill up that, that jerry can, right, or that, that tin can. This one, the electric one, has a battery which I just put on the shelf and then it, I don't have to, it costs nothing to run, okay? My petrol ones made a whole lot of noise. This makes almost no noise. My petrol ones needed constant attention and love and care, where this one doesn't need any care at all. Okay, it doesn't. Ha I don't have to worry about spark plugs. Don't have to worry about oil changes. Don't have to worry about um, filters. Don't have to worry about anything like that. You just give it a clean every now and then, and away it goes. So, um, I decided to get a battery-powered mower because I'm a simple person who likes a simple life, and the less complications I have, the better it is. And so far, so good. Okay, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> If it, if it breaks down the future. My point from that is not to try to convince you all to buy battery-powered mowers, mowers because your circumstances are different to mine, and um, it's just to show you that life's different now than it was 20 years ago. Technology changes, things change, people change, and I had new information now, and when I was able to take in that new information and compare it to the old one, I was able to then make a decision about which way to move forward, which suited me. We are constantly learning, constantly. As long as you move and breathe and interact with anyone else, you are learning as you grow. And that's not just true for the physical world that we live in and, and relationships that we have with people, but it's also true spiritually. Okay, So we are constantly learning from a spiritual perspective, although some of us have closed our minds to learning spiritually. We don't, take, we don't take that as seriously as learning from a physical sense. But it's true spiritually 
especially if you're a believer with a conscience, and every believer has a conscience, but with respect to the conscience. This is what it means to grow in the Lord. The Bible has much to say about growing, about maturing, about try, reaching perfection and, and those sorts of things. Um, but learning how to love, for instance, is one of those things that we are going to be learning for the rest of our lives. Your love is such a deep subject. And with every passing year, we look at it differently because, once again, our relationship with God has changed, hopefully for the better. We learned and appreciate more about his love for us and then we're able to love him even more. Okay. By the work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, we, we maybe appreciate love from a different angle. You see, I see love and those types of topics in the Bible as like diamonds. Okay, and if you if you you've ever bought a diamond, diamonds are not normally cut in squares, or or or, um, or cubes, are they? They're normally cut with a number of different faces, so that when the light reflects on them, they're able to shine and give you this beautiful sort of uh, look. That's true about love, but you can only appreciate love when you look at it from all the different aspects around it. And God allows us, who is our, our wonderful teacher, our perfect teacher, he's the one who allows us to see love through our experiences, our experiences through the church, through his word, through the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Um, and we learn to love as we, as we grow. And so just going back to uh, last time we had this sermon about the conscience. Last time I explored... The, the topic of how we affect each other's consciences. Remember that? And that sort of links with love because if we love one another, we will look out for one another. And that was the, the, the primary um, point of that sermon. And we looked to this example of what Paul gives us a number of times about uh, food that has been sacrificed to idols. And if you were, a, uh, for example, a Gentile that had been saved from paganism and maybe you were dedicated to a particular God whom you used to sacrifice food to, for and then you used to enjoy that food and you believe that, that that God gave you through that food some sort of a blessing. Or if you were a Jew that had been used to his whole life eating only certain foods and not eating other foods that God had told you not to, all of a sudden now you're in a church with other Gentiles in the same church and they're eating foods that you've found distasteful your whole life and you, didn't, you haven't eaten. And all of a sudden now, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with foods that have been offered to idols? And Paul's argument is a simple one. He says that, um, that idols are nothing in the world, he says. In other words, we know that even though the world may worship millions of gods, and you'll find most of those in India, by the way, okay? even though the world may worship millions of different gods, he says, and, they, and they, they've got idols dedicated to them. And mate, he says, they're not gods at all. Because we know that there is only one God. And so all those things are just either figments of people's imaginations or devils trying to masquerade as gods. And so he says, idols are really nothing in this world. They carry no power against us. And so Paul argues that for the, for the believer, it shouldn't make any difference at all. If you bless and eat... There's no curse within that food. There is nothing that can defile you 
from that thing. But he says, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 8 verse 7, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 7, Now, he's explained why there is no condemnation when a believer with faith and by faith and giving thanks eats food that has been sacrificed to an idol. And, and I explained this last time that if you were to go to your marketplace in local um, you know, Rome or uh, in Ephesus or those sorts of places, the likelihood is that if you went to a meat place that sold or a butcher that sold meat, it was more than likely uh, already sacrificed to an idol, okay, whether you knew which one it was or not. So Paul says it didn't really make a difference, blessed and neat. And if you're invited to a place, okay, that, that you know they're, they're pagans, don't even bother to ask whether they've sacrificed to an idol or not. But he says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 8, he says, How be it, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some, with conscience of the idol, Unto this, unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Okay, so he says, but not everyone understands this. Not everyone has received this. Not everyone has accepted this particular teaching. And he says, and those who are in that position where that where they think it's something wrong to do, he says, when they eat it, just because other people are doing the same thing. But they, in their mind, they're not doing it by faith. He says their conscience becomes defiled. And they see the food as being corrupted and having a curse within it. And so it becomes a witness against, it, against them. And they carry that guilt, that remorse of doing that thing. So for a lack of knowledge, okay, their conscience condemns them. And so the Bible speaks of those who have a weak conscience and those who have a strong conscience. And the weaker one is the one that can't eat. And Paul says the stronger one is the one that can. And so why is it weak? Well, it's missing something. Okay, It's missing a particular knowledge that will clear the path for that person to eat without fear without guilt and because it has this particular knowledge that's missing it actually is more easy to defile and become guilt-ridden and so i described a weak conscience a little bit like a phobia last time a phobia is like an unrealistic fear of something not based necessarily on truth now that's an exaggerated form right that's an exaggeration but i'm hoping you get my point a weak conscience is something that's overly sensitive. It's not necessary to be that sensitive. So a weak conscience is an overly sensitive conscience that calls something that is good, bad. That calls something that is neither good nor bad, bad, like eating. And, some, and, and he says, he mentions also, you know, particular days, you know, celebrating particular days and some people's celebrate some days and other people celebrate other days and he says whether you celebrate a day whether you don't celebrate a day 
Okay, you either celebrate it to the Lord or you don't celebrate it to the Lord. And one shouldn't be pointing at the other one saying, you should be celebrating that day. Or the other one should be saying, you shouldn't be celebrating that day. And he says, it's up to every person for themselves to work out which day they want to celebrate for God. Whether it's one, whether it's 365, it's up to that particular person based on their own conscience. But the challenge then came for those with that particular knowledge. Because if you had the particular knowledge and you had accepted that truth for your life and you, your conscience then was able to eat freely without worrying about whether that food had been sacrificed to an idol or whatever else had been done to that food because you knew that there was nothing within that that could curse you or cause you problems because you were free in Christ. He says, if you had that knowledge, the problem was not that you would eat. The problem was then your brother. What do I do with my brother that hasn't accepted that or doesn't know that? And if I choose to flaunt my freedom in front of that brother, I sin because I, I can cause him damage or her damage. Go to 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9. I think you're already there. Just a couple of verses forward. And so he says here to those who have this knowledge, he says, but take heed, be careful, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee, if anyone sees you, which has knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge, through your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. So the onus is then on the stronger one to actually limit their freedom, restrict their freedom, even though they know this thing to be true, for the sake of someone else. You see, love is more important than our personal freedom. I'll repeat that. Love of your brethren is more important than our personal freedom. At every stage, the Bible responds over and over again and teaches that it's, that is more important to love one another and to restrict our freedom for the sake of our brethren. That might be hard to do sometimes. But I'll give you an example. Who likes eating hot chilies here? Who can, who can withstand a really good hot chili? Oh, only one person in this whole church. And there's one more at the back. Thank you, Ashley. Thought this church was a bit more sturdy in its eating abilities. Mind you, we've got a few, we've got a few uh, Indians here as well who didn't put up their hands, so I don't know what's wrong with these people. But imagine that you loved eating hot chili, all right? And you were there eating it every day. And at work, there was a friend of yours that would eat, and he'd come with his, you know, sandwich with ham and cheese or something like that, right? And while you're there eating your hot chili, he's looking at your hot chili and he's thinking, wow, that looks interesting. What is that? And you say, well, that's chili. And he says, is it nice? And you go, oh, it's fantastic, mate. Have you ever had hot chili? No, never tried it. And you know that yours is ramped up to level nine, right? 
If you're a bit sadistic, like I know my family is, you'd say, here, try some. You'll love it. So if that person then becomes emboldened to eat, the result is pain. And that's a bit like having freedom to do something. You're free to do it, but that other person isn't yet. Do you know what I mean? So pushing that in front of them and not being considerate of them is actually a wrong thing to do. And so the scriptures teach that the conscience, which literally means with knowledge, is able to be corrupted in people. It's able to be um, seared. It's able to be defiled. It can be. It can. It can. It can not work properly. It can even reverse what's true and what's not. And so, even when we are saved, there is a job that has to be done because our conscience, which we've carried over from when we were unsaved, needs to be deprogrammed and reprogrammed. Does that make sense? And so, for those uh, budding coders out there. Okay, those who do computer programming and the like. If I were to compare the conscience with something in our common day, it would be most akin to a computer program. Okay, that has all these lines of code and then it tells the computer how to think, what decisions to make and then how to, to give sort of an output. It contains a huge amount of detail and if anyone who does coding, which I've heard from my daughter over and over again, it's not the coding that takes the, the full amount of time, it's the debugging. Because you might think that the way you've written this particular line is going to, you know, make you know, the little frog jump, okay? But instead of the little frog jumps, it might disappear. So you think, why did it disappear? I thought that meant, was meant to do something else. And so a lot of time is spent by computer programmers actually debugging, okay, and trying to fix the, the, the program. So it actually gives you a proper output. And so the average conscience that we have is like that. Okay, it's full of bugs. It doesn't work properly anymore. It doesn't work and it might crash every now and then. It might get caught up in a loop over. Ever feel like that? You've been caught up in the same loop over and over and over again. You've repeated the same thing and you just can't get out of that particular loop. Well, that's that's shows us the problem, okay, with your conscience. Maybe it doesn't know what to do with information being fed in. So it might get new information, doesn't know where to put it. And so it just goes into some sort of a blue screen, you know, that blue screen of death. Or Apple's got the, uh, the circle of death that just keeps on turning, it never stops. And so the, the job that we have in our lives is to improve that code. How do you improve that code? Well, you improve that code by replacing the faulty one with the right one. And so the big question is, who is the programmer and where do you get the good code from? Okay, Who's the programmer? Who's the one that actually puts it in? And where do you get the good code, the proper script from? And the answer is quite simple. Because you have a new person living inside you called the Holy Spirit, he's the programmer. Okay, And where does he get the good code from? He gets it from the Word of God. Okay, The Word of God is the perfect code he's the programmer he's the one who takes from there and deposits it 
in our conscience and updates us with the latest update. It doesn't crash when he does it properly, right? Okay. So the programmer is the Holy Spirit who uses the perfect code of the Word of God and writes it into our conscience. But the question is, well, what part do I play in that? The part we play in that is we allow him to do it. Okay? We have to give permissions. Never had access to, to a computer program or something. You need very you need permission to actually allow things. And we have to give him permission to be able to do that. And some of you might be thinking now, but surely God can do that without our permission? The answer is no. He doesn't force it onto us. And it's a bit like a gate. So the permission opens the gate for that new information to be received. The door is... And I was thinking about this the other night. What's the door and what's the key? The door is humbling yourself before God. The Bible teaches that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the key is faith. If you have faith in God, that's the key that opens the door. And you know what comes in? God's grace. That's why we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the key that it opens the door and says to God, you can come in. I'm not going to be in charge of my own house anymore. I'm not going to blockade you out. I'm going to allow you to rule my life the way you deserve to rule. And so we, with the key of faith, unlock that door and he comes in. And that is true for us every day of our lives. Grace, then, then God administers because God gives grace to the humble and by grace are you saved through faith. And so with that combination of humility and faith, God does his work in our lives. And so the conscience is able to learn from the Spirit of God. You see, remember, the conscience can be defiled, right? The conscience needs to be fixed up, but the Holy Spirit never needs fixing up. He can never become defiled. He never needs programming, that's for sure, because he is God, okay? And so we accept these things from him, by simple faith, by humbling ourselves and saying, yes, this is your will for me. And this is what it means to grow in Christ. And the Holy Spirit can work directly within us through the word of God. He takes from the word of God and he reveals to us what it means. He opens up our understanding. He helps us to put into practice, but not just directly, because God also teaches us communally together. This is the reason that we come to church together. And this is not, me preaching here is not the only reason people come to church. Okay, We come to church because we are called to actually be a blessing one to another, to serve one another. So the, the inherent call within our own lives is not just to learn, right? But once I've learned something, I can then teach it to my brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? So in a sense, we are all teachers. We are all called to share what we have learned, to educate each other. This is what the Bible says in Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Okay? We are always called 
to share what we've known from the Word of God, not just with speaking, but with doing. Because people also learn by imitation. Okay? So 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you, as you do. We are called to continually encourage each other, to continue moving forward. Have you ever considered, you know, when Jesus gives these tremendous sermons, okay, in the Bible, when you read them in the Gospels, and he's, he's got the Sermon on the Mount and all and the Beatitudes and all that sort of stuff. Have you ever wondered what his disciples spoke about after among themselves? You know, when they were getting ready for bed at night and they were around a campfire and Jesus may have been somewhere else. Have you ever, have you considered what conversations might have taken place between them? When Jesus, you know, when Jesus says, for, when, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I wonder how they, they might have accepted that or read that. You know, he hadn't died on a cross yet, right? And some of them hadn't even got to the realisation that he was going to die. They couldn't even accept it. So maybe they asked the question, what did he mean that he gave? What do you think that it means? And someone else might have given a, an answer to that. Or maybe they'll enter into deep discussions about other things. You know, the meek shall inherit the earth. What is that going to mean? So I'm, I'm meeker than you. So does that mean I'm going to get more than you? Or you can just see them going back to the Lord after they had the discussion, trying to work out a particular part of, part of the thing. And, you know, like John goes back to, to Jesus and says, you know, Jesus, uh, Master, uh, I need you to answer one thing. We've been having this discussion over there and we heard the way you, you taught us to pray and where it says give us this daily bread, right, when we pray, Peter's, Peter's saying that God doesn't like butter because it's only bread that we're supposed to be praying for. So we can't ask for buttered bread. What do you think about that? Now, that's a silly one, isn't it? But can you imagine the number of conversations that would have had around that? When we get together, we are called to build one another up. In fact, not even when we're to get just together. We are, when we are apart, we are called to build one another up by sharing the word of God with each other and helping each other to apply it in our lives. When we get together and discuss from, from the word of God and discuss what we've learned and share those things, that's why those meetings that the men get together, the women get together, uh, and, and we are able to share our experience with each other are actually really important. They're very important. Because we actually encourage each other with those things and we learn from each other. We are doing the same things that disciples who followed Jesus did. And what did, what's the main thing disciples do? What does a disciple do? I mean, they're following Jesus around every day. What are they doing? Ah, oh, who said that? Ten points for you. They're learning. What are they learning? They're learning. They're watching the way he lives. They're watching the way he speaks. They're watching what he does. They're listening to the, to the teachings from his mouth. They are learning. Why are they learning? Because they want to be like their master. They want to be like him. And the only way you're going to be like him is if you learn of him. Okay, And so that's what our calling is in life. We are called to be disciples, each and every one of us. 
And it should be our lifelong ambition to be like our master, to be exactly like him. The disciples wanted to be like their master. They called him Rabbi, Rabboni. And by learning, we change the way we respond, the way we act, the way we speak. And so going back to the analogy of a computer program, the code produces an intent, the notion to do something, and then it displays something, okay? So that screen is like our lives and what we do in this world. And if the computer program doesn't work properly, then what's displayed on the screen doesn't come out right. And so how do we check that off? We check it by comparing ourselves to the perfect program, the perfect outcome, and that's Jesus. Because if I think that my program and my conscience is working well, okay, and then with the input that I get, let's say I am persecuted by someone. Let's say someone does something nasty to me, right? And I decide to take revenge on that person. Is that the right output on the screen for what my master did? No. This is the exact point. So we always have a standard to compare ourselves to, and it's him. And the first thing we should always ask ourselves is, would he do this? Would he think like this? Would this result that I'm running into now be the same as he would run into? And so we have a perfect, God has given us a perfect model. You know, if there's a perfect computer program output, it's Jesus, okay? And so when we compare our lives with his, um, we know whether the program is working with us or whether it's not. Every child, every child of God has a duty, a responsibility to constantly learn, to shape, to keep a track of and monitor what our conscience is doing, what it's actually saying. The shaping or forming of our conscience simply means we are educating it. We're training it. We do this not for ourselves, but for God. We do this for him because it's his. Our lives are his. You know, Oswald Chambers, in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, says uh, this, and I agree with it. Conscience is that ability within me that attaches itself to the highest standard and then continually reminds me of what that standard demands that I do. It is the eye of the soul which looks out either toward God or toward what we regard as the highest standard. This explains why conscience is different in different people. If I'm in the habit of continually holding God's standard in front of me, my conscience will always direct me to God's perfect law and indicate what I should do. The question is, will I obey? I have to make an effort to keep my conscience so sensitive that I can live without any offence toward anyone. I should be living in such perfect harmony with God's Son, my highest standard, that the spirit of my mind is being renewed through every circumstance of life and that I may be able to quickly prove what is that good 
an acceptable and perfect will of God. Living in this way produces a clear and peaceful conscience. Turn to 2 Corinthians 1.12 with me for a moment. Do we need the air in in here? Is it a bit stuffy? You're okay? Not feeling muggy? No? Okay. Second Corinthians one twelve. So Paul says, For our rejoicing is this the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world. And more abundantly to you would. He's speaking to the other believers in Corinth. And so the testimony of our conscience is a reason to rejoice for the believer. And that testimony of our conscience is the, is the knowledge that Jesus' blood has cleansed me of all of my sin. Now that is a huge reason to rejoice. And if your conscience is aware of that and knows that, then live according to that. This is joy. To have a clear conscience toward God. To be sincere. And I notice he says here, to live with simplicity. Okay? Take note of that word simplicity. It's simple. It's not overly complicated. Okay? This is not a set of rules and regulations and all the various things that you have to follow in order to keep God happy. No, it's not complicated. It's not a religious system. It's a daily walk with the God who loves you and me. And so Paul says, and he warns, if you go forward to chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians, he says he's got a fear, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. There's a fear that Paul had. Not that Paul was afraid of any person, but his fear was for the believers. And he says, but I fear, in verse 3, lest by any means... As a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Simplicity. To be a Christian is not complicated. Yes, there's plenty of information from the word of God, but to live for God is not complicated. To be saved is not complicated. There aren't a thousand steps we have to take to be saved. It's by simple grace through faith. The dead works are those religious ceremonies and rituals that people have concocted over the years to make themselves justified before God, but that's not the case for the believer. A clear conscience gives you room for an abiding peace with God. We can remain calm, confident, when everything else is changing around us because we have God in our lives and he does not change. He is the constant he is the foundation for our lives. Turn back to Acts chapter 24 with me. Acts chapter 24. Then I'm just going to give you four simple points on how to have a clean, good and pure conscience. Acts 24, verse 15 and 16. 
This is what the Apostle Paul strove for in his life. And it says in Acts 24:15, And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men. Okay? That I don't do wrong by God and I don't do wrong by other people. A clear conscience is a wonderful thing these days. It liberates us from fear becoming our motive because fear motivates a lot of people in this world and fear is not the motivating factor we have been called to. In fact, the Bible says that we are constrained by the love of Christ, not the fear of Christ, not the fear of God. Let the religions be motivated by fear. We are not to be motivated by fear without when we come and make our decisions. The Bible says in Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So how do we maintain, how do we keep a good conscience? Well, the first one really is, and I've got four points here, we must let, never lose sight of the fact that faith is foundational here. That faith is embodied in the gospel. The gospel clears a conscience when we realise and by faith believe that the blood of Christ has cleansed us from every sin and stain. The health of your conscience will depend on the health of your faith and what type of faith you actually have. That's why 1 Timothy 3.9 says, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Faith and conscience go hand in hand. A strong faith leads to a good conscience. Faith has an incredible impact on that. And so Hebrews 10 verse 22, turn with me there. Hebrews 10 verse 22, which finishes our first point. Remember faith is important, okay? Remember that it's what you're trusting in that makes all the difference. Whether you trust in God or whether you trust in yourself, whether you trust in his word or whether you trust in the wisdom of this world, that will determine where your conscience is going to go. And Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You got that? In full assurance of faith, which means you're trusting fully what God is telling you, what God says in his word. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. God is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. If you put your faith in Christ 10 years ago, he's still the same. He hasn't changed. You've changed. I've changed. But he hasn't changed. And so we can keep our eyes focused on him. He is our perfect example to walk day after day. He never lets us down. So that's step number one. Keep an eye on your faith. What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? And the second one, the second point, is that we must determine to make the written word of God our constant guide and standard of our lives. 
It's the word of God. This is why there are so many empty churches in this country. Because they abandoned the word of God many years ago. They stopped teaching it. So where are you going to go after that? Well, you're going to end up adopting all the world's morals. You're going to be adopting all the world's um, uh, latest fads and arguments and those types of things. And if you start talking about those things in the church and you've abandoned the word of God, then you're just like the world. And why would people even come to church? You're not different. You might as well go and join the activists. You know what I mean? All over the place, doing whatever they want to do. Church is not that. It's the word of God that must be our constant guide and standard for living. It is changeless like our saviour. If the object of our faith is Christ who doesn't change, it's the means of what we learn from him and through him is the word of God which also doesn't change and hasn't changed from the beginning. And that's why the apostle Peter says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. And that's why I brought up this passage from uh, Psalm 1. Because you'll notice here, actually turn back, turn back with me there because I'm just about to finish point two. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Let's just read that quickly again. And I want you to consider here what, what the counsel is, what the teaching is. Because this is, what, this is about learning. And the question is who we're learning it from. Okay, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. So what's he saying? Blessed is the person who's not learning from ungodly people about life. And you'll notice it says, Nor standeth in the way of sinners. Not living like people in this world. Because that's the next thing. Nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And that's, and that's the scornful people that, that consider God to be not real. Okay. Blessed is the man who doesn't follow in that direction and learn from that direction. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law doth he meditate day and night. That's a beautiful thought when you think about it. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. To meditate means not just to read and gloss over. It doesn't mean just reading a whole passage and not understanding what you're, what you're reading. It means you're chewing over something. You're thinking about something. You're comparing it to what you already know. You're comparing it to what you're doing. And you're examining yourself in the light of that new truth. But look at this. If you do make the law of God, if you do make his word your delight, and you meditate on that word, and you think about it, and you chew on that word, day and night it says that he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season at the right time. His leaf also, also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Look at the promise that you've got. This is the promise of the word of God to you. That if you make his word the foundation for your life, and you meditate on that word, and you, you feed on that word, and you grow through that word, the Bible says that you will be like that tree. You will, will bring forth fruit. You won't fade away. You won't die. You will live. 
And there's your promise for the word of God. But understand, how long does a tree take to grow? It doesn't grow overnight. So the, the picture here is that you understand that your life will change day by day. And then the fruit that you're hoping for in your life will come at the right time. Just trust God and it will work. Don't give up. Don't detach yourself from that, those, those rivers of living water, which is his word, because the moment you detach yourself is the moment you start withering away. So don't be impatient. Be patient. Be consistent. Make God's word your delight and God promises that you will grow. Okay, But give yourself time because each of us is at a different level. Some of us have got branches all over the place. Some of us are maybe just a stump and we're waiting for the, for the thing to come up again. Some of us have endured bushfires, you know what I mean, with our lives and maybe that needs to start sprouting again. Some of us have been barren of fruit for a long time and we've given up almost hope of producing fruit that we're hoping for. But God's promise is that you will produce fruit. Don't give up. So that's two. Step three, remain sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. God has not put his spirit within us just for a laugh or for no reason at all. Okay, That spirit has sealed us unto the day of redemption. And he consistently works within us, teaching us. Remember, he's our teacher. He's the programmer. He's the one that is never defiled and he leads us constantly to keep our eyes on Jesus. Don't ever confuse the Holy Spirit with your conscience. They are two different things. While every human being has a conscience, only believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Your conscience can be corrupted. The Holy Spirit can, cannot be corrupted. He remains holy, sinless and a good influence in our lives. As I've said before, the Holy Spirit takes from the Word of God, interprets it for us so we can understand it, and then shows us how to live it. Remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34 says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now that's a specific promise to the Jews. Okay, that will come one day when they will all know God, and that they will all be saved. And that's our prayer and our hope for them as well. And the final point, step four, never make light of sin. Okay, Do not make light of sin. Treat sin as the scourge, as the disease, as the dangerous thing that it is. Okay, When we play around with sin, we are putting ourselves in danger and the lives of people around us in danger. Sin is a terrible thing. We must never make light of our moral failures. We must never downplay and we should never play with sin. 
If we sin, the Bible says, we should immediately confess it before God and repent of it. Don't hold on to it and say, yo, I'm sorry for that one, but I'm just going to keep on going in this direction because I'm enjoying it. Now, this is the problem of sin. It's always enjoyable. If sin wasn't enjoyable, it wouldn't be a problem, would it? If it was the same as burning yourself with, a, uh, with an iron rod, you wouldn't be doing it every day, would you? The problem is that it's actually pleasurable. Okay, It's easy to do. In our world, it's more than easy to do, and that's the challenge that we have. But we are called to confess and repent of it. I shall share with you one thing. If there's one thing that we are called to be constantly angry about, did you know this? These are, we're called to be constantly angry. Are you angry every day? No, you're not, are you? We're called to be angry about one thing, and that's sin. You know that verse in Ephesians 4.26, be ye angry and sin not? Most people look at that and say, oh, if I have an argument with my wife, and I might have been right, I'm normally right, okay, when I'm having an argument with my wife, uh, I shouldn't let the sun go down on my wrath, right? So most people look at this verse and they say, oh, we should put our differences aside, we should forgive each other before we go to bed at night, okay? And most of, most of this is uh, most of this has to do with married couples, apparently. What about the rest of the people? But it says here, be ye angry. It says, be ye angry. And, the, and, the, and the, the result of that is, sin not. And you'll notice that the end of that verse doesn't say, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. It is. It says. It, well, sorry. It says, "Let not the sun go down upon your wrath." That doesn't necessarily mean that you are to give up the wrath. But if the sun was never to set on something in your life, does that mean it finishes it or keeps going? If the sun doesn't set on something, it doesn't set, which means it doesn't go down on something. It means it keeps going. So I take that, so you'll note in verse 27, it then says, neither give place to the devil. So I take that to mean, God wants me to be angry against sin. Be in constant warfare against it. We have to be. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Be like Joshua. Remember when Joshua prayed? Lord, keep the sun up because we have to finish these people off, right? And God kept the sun. It didn't set. It just stayed up there. Why? So Joshua could, could finish the rest of, of that, uh, that opposing army off. This should be our desire with sin. Let me finish this thing off in my life. Let me hate it with the same hatred that you have for it. You see, God hates it. Let me have the same wrath against this particular thing that you have, God. Never make light of sin. But if we confess our sins, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want, you, I want to finish this with this thought with you. We should always be aware of what we are allowing ourselves to become accustomed to and comfortable with. Okay, Because what you become comfortable with is teaching your conscience what you can do and what you can't do. 
So whether we realise it or not, we are programming our consciences every day. How? Well, when you were brought up in your family home, your conscience learned from that. When you choose your friends and spend time with them, your conscience learns from that. The culture that you live in is influencing your conscience as well. What movies you watch, what TV you watch, what music you listen to, what books you read, what entertainment you engage in is telling your conscience this is either okay or it's not. Do not play with sin, please. Because if you are comfortable with watching sin, if that's your form of entertainment, then you're simply teaching your conscience that it's okay. Beware what you do with your conscience. Beware who your teacher is. Beware where you're spending your time, where you're drawn to. The Bible says that we, the word of God is meant to be the guide for our conscience. A good, godly, sensitive and healthy conscience leads to a good, godly, sensitive and healthy life before God. And the goal is, in Ephesians 4.13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. That's our goal. Our goal is to become perfect. Now, probably not going to reach that, but that should be our goal, to be as much like our saviour as we possibly can. So who's reached that in, this, in their life so far? Hands up who's reached that stage of perfection yet? No. Which of us is perfect? None of us are yet. But we are not just called to be perfect alone. We are called to be perfect in unity together. So even if I'm at this point, you might be this point ahead of me. It's your job then to teach me what you know that I don't know. It's my job then to teach you what I know that you don't know. And the whole goal is that we are growing together as a family of God, until we all reach that unity, that perfectness. You see, the goal of perfection is not just for me, it's for you. And your goal of perfection is not just you, it's for me and everyone else around you. Be sensitive towards your fellow believers. Be sensitive toward the Holy Spirit. Keep the word of God as a foundation for your life. And remember, stay faithful. And keep the faith and keep your eyes on Jesus. God bless you. Thank you. Let's close in a uh, final hymn.